Amen. Thank you, Maurice. The word amen is derived uh, from a Hebrew word that means I believe. So let's just say that together, knowing that amen means I believe. Can we say that together? Amen? Amen. amen. We'll go ahead and take a seat, everybody. And let's take our Bibles and turn to the passage that Maurice just read. If you're watching online right now, let me invite you as well to turn to Romans chapter 9. We're beginning a brand new series today in uh, the book of Romans entitled Holy Transformed. So we've looked uh, over the last year, first of all, at the fact that we are wholly unholy without Christ. And then we saw how we are wholly redeemed in Christ Jesus. Now, as we head towards the end of this great book, we want to see what it means to be wholly transformed by the power of Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what this series is about. How might we be wholly transformed? And some of you might even ask right now, what does that look like, Pastor Tony? How is that accomplished? How might I be transformed? Could, how, Pastor Tony, might we as a church expedite that process? Because I need changing, Pastor Tony. I got things in me that need to change. Anybody feeling that right now? They need to be transformed. I feel that this morning. I need transformation. I long for God to refine me and conform me into the image of my big brother, Jesus Christ. I can see already in my 42 years on this earth and 36 years or so as a Christian how God has already transformed me. Y'all see that in your lives? And I'll just tell you, I've seen that transformation in the past, and I want more of that. I want more of those changes, those things that only God can do. And I have, I have specific areas in my life right now that I want God to change right now. My small group knows all about it, okay? And I'm asking God for change in that way. In the next few months, church, we are going to study transformation in our lives. And as part of that, we're going to be studying these amazing and these memorable passages of Scripture, some of the most memorable in Scripture. Tell me if you've heard this before. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 2. Y'all heard that before? Have you now? We'll be covering that passage in just a few weeks, Lord willing. Romans 10, 9 and 10. We'll be looking at this soon. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Y'all heard that before? That's in Romans. We're going to cover that soon. I've Probably quoted that verse about a thousand times. I can't wait, wait to preach that verse of Scripture, that passage of Scripture. We're going to look at passages like this one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Romans 12, verse 1. In this one, Romans 10, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this one, Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So Lord willing, Deo Valente, those are the passages we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks, months here at Harvest Decatur. And today I'll just let you know ahead of time, Romans 9, 1 through 5, the topic of, a message, of the message today is about evangelism. It's about evangelism. It's about getting the, work out about, the word out about Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at this remarkable statement by the Apostle Paul where he says, essentially, I would willingly be condemned for the sake of my kinsfolk. I, I would willingly be accursed, says Paul, if my fellow Israelites would turn away from their hard hearts and embrace Christ as the Messiah. I, I can't help but read that, even as I heard Maurice read it and think, really, Paul? Really? You would be willing to do that? And the question I've been asking myself this week in preparation for this message is, you know, is, is Paul hyperbolizing? Does he really 
Is he really willing to do that, to be accursed? And you know, the, the real question I've been asking myself this week is, do I really love lost people like Paul does? He's that willing to be even accursed for the sake of lost people. Do I even have a, an ounce of that kind of love and passion and heartbreak for lost people? God help us. I want that. Does my heart break for my fellow Americans who are lost? Like Paul's heart breaks for Israelites. Does your heart break for lost people like Paul's does? That's the question we're asking this morning. And let's see if we can just get some evangelistic steam built up in our church through this passage today. That's what I want to do. That's my goal. So here we go, church. Let's talk Romans 9, 1 through 5. I want to give you today three motivations for evangelism this morning, three great reasons to get the word out about Jesus Christ. Three great reasons to get the word out about Jesus Christ. Here's the first reason. Jesus Christ, church, is the hope for eternity. You know that. I know that. Do the people around us know that? Do the people in your life know that? Jesus Christ is our hope for eternity. Jesus Christ is the only hope for eternity. Paul says this in verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now this statement, I'll just say this comes as a complete surprise in Romans 9. It does. I mean, it kind of catches you off guard. Because if you remember last week at the end of Romans 8, I mean, Paul reached that, that glorious doxological climax. And he, I mean, he, he was euphoric at the end of chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. That was good last week. That was so good last week. I wanted to preach it again this week. Just, let's do it all over again. Well, Paul moves. Here's what's striking. Paul moves from exaltation in Romans 8 to lamentation in Romans 9. Paul goes from soaring rhetoric in Romans 8 to sorrow and regret in Romans 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, says Paul. You know, and as a pastor, I hear somebody say that. If I was Paul's pastor, I'd be like, are you all right, buddy? Are you okay? Can I help? You know, is, you need me to pray for you? Something else I can do for you, Paul? That, that, that doesn't sound good. I'm sure the church in Rome that was reading this for the first time was caught off guard too. It's like, what just happened? I thought Paul was euphoric. And now he's depressed. Paul was singing God's praises at the end of Romans 8. Now, now he's in the pits talking about unceasing anguish in his heart. What could possibly make him feel like this? What, in, in light of Romans 8 and what, what he says in Romans 8, how could anybody feel like this? What could possibly cause Paul to be sorrowful and anguished in his heart? I'll tell you what he's sorrowful about. And it's something we all should be sorrowful about. He is sorrowful. He is anguished because of the destiny of lost people. People are going to hell. People are lost in their sin. And it hurts Paul to think about that. People he knows, people he grew up with, it breaks his heart. And you know what? It should break our heart too. It should break our heart too. And I know this, this feels so irreconcilable. How can you at the same time be ecstatic about the Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal security he offers us in Romans 8 and then be heartbroken about the eternal insecurity of those who reject Christ? Romans 9, how is that possible? Well, I'll, I'll just tell you this morning that, that those two aspects, those two elements, joy and sorrow, those are two inescapable parts of the Christian life, and it's completely consistent to have both of those. And the older you get as a Christian, the longer you walk with Christ, the more joy you feel at knowing that I am with Christ forever, and the more sorrow you feel at the same time that other people don't have that. Right? 
Those of you who have been walking with Christ for a while, you know this, right? Joy and sorrow. That's consistent with the Christian life. Paul's heart breaks for Jewish people here, family members, people he went to synagogue with as a kid, people who believe like he did before the Damascus Road experience when the Lord got a hold of his heart and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Some of you, I know, you have family members that are lost and you ache over that. You're not alone. Paul was like that too. Some of you, I know, you have friends who continue to reject Christ, even though you've given great testimony, even though you've tried to convince them. And paradoxically, as a Christian, we have both sorrow and joy intermixed in our hearts. Those experiences in life, even as people reject Christ, they bring us great joy in knowing that we have security in Christ, we cherish Christ more, and at the same time, we anguish with a broken heart for those who don't know him. Right? Right, church? I know some of y'all feel this. I've had conversations with you about this. I mean, Paul uses this word here, adune. That's a Greek word that means intense anxiety, anguish, grief, emotional pain. But, but it's not just adune in this passage. It's unceasing adune. It's unceasing anguish. Every time Paul sees another Jewish person reject Christ, he agonizes. Every time he has a, a painful conversation with a hard-hearted Israelite, he grieves with unceasing anguish in his heart. And for people who don't understand that, you might say, well, good grief, Paul. You said just a few moments ago that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now you're agonizing unceasingly. You know, that sounds kind of bipolar, Paul. Which are you? Is it joy or is it sorrow? Listen, hear me on this. It's both as a Christian. It's both joy and it is cognitive dissonance as a Christian. There is joy and sorrow both. That is our lot in life on this side of eternity as Christians. I remember hearing a pastor say something about this not that long ago and I thought it was one of the most brilliant observations I've ever heard and it's, it, it has stuck with me for several years. And here's, here's what this pastor said. He said that Christians have the remarkable capacity to be both more joyful and more sorrowful than non-Christians. He said, we have that capacity. Why is that the case? Why, why are we like that? Well, he says Ezekiel prophesied in the Old Testament that someday God would take out the hearts of stone among his people and give them a heart of flesh. God has given us this tender heart of flesh, which makes us joyful and also sorrowful both. We can't be hard-hearted because the Holy Spirit won't let us be hard-hearted. We can't be cold because the Holy Spirit won't make us, won't allow us to be cold, won't let those, that, that, that heart of flesh that God has given us, it stays tender. And we grieve and we empathize and we sympathize with others. So Christians have a greater capacity for sorrow but we also at the same time have a greater capacity for joy why is that the case because what's the fruit of the spirit one of the fruits anyway it's joy we are in Christ Jesus we have joy unspeakable and full of glory I don't even know why I'm joyful right now but I am it's just this thing that just kind of bubbles up out of me because the Holy Spirit's inside of me we've got that and at the same time we've got sorrow those things intermix together Charles Spurgeon said once, you can read this on the screen, he said, I have had more joys and more sorrows in the last few years than any man in this place, for my life has been compressed, a vast mass of emotion into one year. He's a pastor, he gets emotional, I get it. You know, in Spurgeon, he, around the time that he wrote this, he had this incident in his church where one of the people in the church uh, screamed fire and then everybody panicked and left and several people were, were trampled to death as a result of that. And Spurgeon, he felt that so uh, agonizingly. He felt responsible for that and he wept and he, he anguished over that. And yet at the same time, Spurgeon says this, he says, the love of God to us has been an unfailing support in all our trials. 
John Piper said once, he says, Christians are not called to have periodic joy in God, but perpetual joy. We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. <laughs> Some of y'all need to just go meditate on that for a little while. Second Corinthians 6 verse 10. Memorize that. That's an easy verse to memorize, right? Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Piper says the key to such steady state joy in God is hope in the glory of God through the worst sufferings, physical and emotional. Paul has that. Paul has euphoric joy, Romans 8. And he has sorrow and emotional pain, Romans 9. And speaking of emotional pain, look what Paul says in verse 3. Look at this. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. Oof and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's how deep Paul's pain is for lost people. That's, fa that's how far he's willing to go for his fellow Israelites. By the way, that word accursed there is the Greek word anathema. Anathema, and, and Paul is not saying here, you know, I'd be willing to spend a few days in purgatory for some people. He is not saying that. Purgatory does not exist, by the way. He's not even saying I'd be willing to die for some people. I know Paul would be willing to die. He's saying more than that. He's saying I'm, I would willingly be anathematized. I would willingly be cut off from Christ for eternity if that, if that were even possible, which it's not, by the way. That is not possible. This is hypothetical. Paul says I would willingly be eternally damned if it meant that my brothers, not Christian brothers, mind you, but Israelites, Jewish unbelievers, if my fellow Israelites could be saved. So back to my question, is Paul hyperbolizing here? Is, I mean, does he, would he really do that? Would he really be willing to do that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that Paul loved lost people that much. He cared about them deeply. Deeply, Tom Schreiner says it this way. This is from his commentary on Romans. He says, Paul's heart is rent with sorrow because so many of his kindred have rejected the message of the gospel and are therefore destined for judgment. And I'm just telling you, Harvest Decatur, everybody listening? It's kind of dark up here now. I can't see your faces, so. Y'all listening? I want this. I want this same kind of love and passion for lost people to see them saved, to beg God even. And I don't know if I could go as far as Paul. I don't know if I'll ever get there. I would willingly be set apart from Christ for other people. I, I can't say that. I don't know if I'll ever be able to say that, but whatever the intent is behind that, whatever the heart is behind that, I want that. That love for lost people and, and that, that being emboldened for evangelism. I actually think Paul is echoing here something from the Old Testament. Moses, after that infamous golden calf incident, he begged God not to destroy the Israelites. Moses said, blot my name out of the book of life before you do them. You know, if you're going to destroy them, destroy me too, Lord. Kill me too if you're going to kill them. And, you know, Moses... In that whole scenario, Moses puts himself forward as a substitutionary atonement for his people, which foreshadowed Jesus' substitutionary atonement. And Paul echoes that here. Kill me, not them, Lord. Lord, let me take their place. I think this is instructive for us for another reason, too. I, th I think it's okay to have kinship bonds and to have ethnic affinities like Paul had here for the Israelites. Paul would say elsewhere that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. You know, Paul's whole argument at the beginning of Romans, if you read through Romans, is it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're, you're Jewish or a Greek, Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't matter. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come to Jesus. We all need Christ. What matters is do you know Christ or not? And the, the closest bonds that Paul had were with his brothers and sisters in Christ, not his brothers and sisters who were Jewish. 
That's, that's clear from not just Romans, but from other places where Paul writes about this. But still, even with that, Paul still has this, this longing, this affinity for, the, for people like him, for Jews like him, for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He wants to see them get saved. And maybe some of y'all feel that too. And I'm just telling you right now, that's okay. If it's okay for Paul, it's okay for you. I don't think Paul would, would, would fault you for that. If you have an affinity for your family members getting saved, even if you have an affinity for your own ethnicity, African-American, Hispanic, Caucasian, Asian-American, even your nationality, Americans, Mexicans, Canadians, Croatians. I know that my wife's heart breaks when Croatian people continually reject Christ and she has a connection and a longing for them to embrace Christ and I don't think that's wrong. Paul had that too. So why do we get the word out about Jesus Christ? Why do we want to do this? Why are we heartbroken when people reject Christ? First of all, because Christ is the hope for eternity. He's the only hope for eternity. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament expectation. Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament expectation. Here's the question that emerges for me in, in verse four. The question is, you know, why, why are you talking about this now, Paul? I mean, why bring this up now? Why, why is this so heavy on your heart in this letter to Romans, in Romans 9? I mean, surely you don't have to tell us everything that you're feeling, Paul. I mean, it's okay to hold back some stuff. I know I don't tell you guys everything I'm feeling. You can thank me for that later. He doesn't have to say all of this. Why does he say this? Paul never does anything without a purpose. Why now? Here, here's the answer. Here's why I think Paul is addressing this right now on the heels of Romans 8. I think he hears the voice of naysayers saying, oh yeah, Paul? Eternal security, huh? So God is always true to his promises. Well, what about the people of Israel? Hmm? What about them? What, what about God's promises to them? Didn't God love them? Didn't, didn't God make promises to them? And yet so many of them are rejecting Christ now and not listening to what you say. So what gives, Paul? That's, I think, at least part of the objection that he's dealing with here. And, and by the way, he's going to deal with that objection in terms of the Jewish people all the way to the end of Romans 11. So this is a big deal for Paul. Must have been a big deal in the church of Rome that he was addressing where there were Jews and Gentiles both gathering in worship together. And here, here is at least part of Paul's answer to that objection. Look at verse 4. Paul says, they are Israelites. These are his brothers according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. In other words, God has been faithful to the Jewish people. God has been faithful to the Israelites and his promises to them. He gave them everything that was promised to them, including the Messiah, verse 5. By the way, just a quick history lesson here, Israelites, that's an interesting term here. The Jewish people, up until the time of the Exodus, they were called the Hebrews or the Hebrew nation. After the Exodus, they were called the Israelites. They were named after Jacob, whose name later became Israel. And they, of course, took over the promised land that became Israel. But then after Babylonian captivity, they came back as the Jews. So the Hebrews, the Israelites, and then the Jews. And that's primarily because they occupied this area called Judea and the, the main um, nation at that time, the main clan was the Judah, Judahites. So they were referred to as Jews, and most people around them referred to them as Jews, but they preferred to call themselves still Israelites. That's why Paul uses this term here I'm an Israelite, not just a Jew, I'm an Israelite. And he's making it crystal clear that his heart breaks for ethnic Jews, for those Israelites, his fellow Israelites. And Paul said, he gives this great list of things that they've been given. They've been given the adoption. 
The, you know, Abraham and his offspring were adopted as the people of God. Was there anything inherently good about Abraham that led him to be chosen by God? No. No, there was nothing good in him that, that allowed for him to be chosen over those people in his clan, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. By the way, you know, Abraham, he was, can I say this? He was kind of a scoundrel. He was a wily character. He tried to sell people on the fact that Sarah was his sister, not his, his wife, in order to save his own skin. And he did that twice. Abraham was kind of a scoundrel. And yet God loved him and adopted him and made him into a great nation. They had that. The Israelites had that heritage. They also had the glory they had Yahweh dwelling in their camp. His Shekinah glory emanated from the tabernacle and then later the temple. They had that. They also had the covenants. They had the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and then the Davidic covenant. God came to them time and time again and said, you are my people. I'm making a covenant with you today. They also had the law. We've dealt with that in the book of Romans. They also had the worship. They had the animal sacrifices that Yahweh had instituted. And they had Yahweh worship exclusively in their nation. All the other nations around Israel knew that is the God. Their, their God is Yahweh. The God of the Israelites is Yahweh. Everybody knew that. That was exclusive to them. They had the worship of Yahweh. They also had the promises. And the most important of those promises is the messianic promise that a son of David would come and save Israel from their sins. And he, the son of David, would be the serpent crusher. He would be the suffering servant. He would be the, the conquering hero of the people of Israel. He would save Israel from their sins. It even saved beyond Israel from their sins. Lowly Gentiles like us. Jesus came from the Jewish people. Can I just tell you a truth right now that you need to embrace? Jesus was Jewish. Deal with it. He came to them first. Paul says that in verse 16 of chapter 1. Paul says to the Jew first and then also the Gentiles the gospel came. Look at verse 5. Paul says there's more that God gave the Jewish people. To them belong the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, but also the matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Ruth, Esther, Bathsheba. These are the great ancestors of the Jewish people. And Paul says, look at the middle of verse 5, and from their race, from the Jewish people, according to the flesh, Jesus was more than Jewish, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, is the Christ. And let me stop right here and talk about this. You know, Paul is heartbroken because they had all this. And yet their own kinsmen, his own kinsmen, rejected the Messiah. They had all this heritage, heritage, heritage. But, I mean, Paul's already told us that heritage doesn't save you. Faith in Christ saves you. Y'all know that, don't you? It doesn't matter who your mama is. It doesn't matter who your daddy is. It doesn't matter what country you're born in. Your heritage doesn't save you. Your faith in Christ saves you. And if you don't believe that, then you need to go back and read Romans 1 through 8 again until you get that. The Jewish people in Paul's day had all these great benefits, had all this great heritage, and yet they rejected the Christ who was originally given to them. And Paul says about that, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart over this. He is heartbroken over that. You know, as I was thinking about this, this last week, I was trying to think about parallels in our own experience and corollaries. And, and there are some as Americans. We can sympathize with what Paul is saying here because we have a great heritage in America. We in America had Jonathan Edwards. We are, the, we are the country of D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. That's our heritage. John Wesley came here to preach the gospel. George Whitfield came here to preach the gospel. He had more converts here than he did back in England. 
That's our heritage. That's our country. We are the country of Martin Luther King and Booker T. Washington. We are the country of Lottie Moon and Elizabeth Elliot and Sojourner Truth and Susan B. Anthony and Johnny Erickson Tata. We are the American people, USA, right? That's us. That's our heritage. We are the country of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. That's our country. And I know what some of y'all are saying right now. You're saying, hey, Pastor Tony, you know, some of those people didn't really have like orthodox beliefs in Christianity. I know, I know, trust me, I know. But I'll also tell you this, they would be appalled right now if they saw the way that we are so quickly as a country jettisoning the, the theistic beliefs that they passed down to us, the convictions that they held. And you know what, I'll just tell you right now, that breaks my heart. If you are a student of history, that should break your heart. That... In our day, young people have more respect for Che Guevara and Karl Marx than they do their own spiritual forebears. We have young people that wax poetic about communism who have never lived in a communist country. We have young people who have never lived in a socialist country that rhapsodize about socialism, and yet they have basked in the goodness of our country their entire lives. That breaks my heart. And all of this reminds me, here's the reminder for all of us. First of all, heritage doesn't save you. You are not born into Christianity. You are born again into Christianity. You young people listening right now, it doesn't matter what your mama believed, your daddy believed. I'm glad they believe in Christ. You need to believe in Christ. God has no grandchildren. He has only children. And then the second thing it makes me think in light of what's happening in our country, in our world, in light of what Paul's saying right here is, is this, people need the Lord. They need the Lord. And who's going to speak for them? Who's going to speak for Christ in this world? Are you going to be bullied into silence? I'm not. I want to speak for Christ. Let me just ask you, Harvest Decatur, how, how's your love for the lost right now? How is your heart for evangelism? Are you begging and pleading God for lost people in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, in Decatur, Illinois, this place where God has placed us? I've been convicted by this this last week. My heart doesn't break for the loss like it should. I'm asking God to reignite that passion inside of me. You know, we, we planted a church 12 years ago. Did y'all hear about that? We planted a church 12 years ago. Harvest Decatur. And we had four pillars that we wanted to be committed to. And that fourth pillar, that evangelism pillar, is the hardest to stay committed to. Isn't it? Maybe not for all of you. I know some of you are like, evangelism, Pastor Tony. Yeah, preach it, Pastor Tony. We need this. I know some of y'all like that. Praise God. Thank you for being in our church and for being infectious in that way. But I'll, I'll just speak for myself. That, that fourth pillar is that one that keeps crawling off the table. It keeps running away. And you got to go grab it and get it back and put it back and say, I, we will be this kind of church. We want to be these kinds of Christians that love lost people. And by the way, elders, we these are the pillars that we committed to. We We need to to show the way in that regard. We can't let this pillar be marginalized in our church. We need to model that. Lord, break our heart for evangelism, I pray. Give us a passion for that again. Write this down as number three. Three reasons to get the word out about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hope for eternity. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament expectation. And thirdly, Jesus Christ is the God over everything. And when I say everything, 
I mean everything. Jesus is the God over everything. Now, I could close this message with a really impassioned plea for evangelism and even a preaching the gospel with lots of gusto, encouraging those of you who aren't saved to get saved. You know what? I am going to close this message that way. <laughs> so get ready. But before we do that, I, we need to deal with something. And it's something that Paul covers here wonderfully clarifying at the end of this passage, at the end of verse 9. And by the way, this is one of the things that some of our founding fathers got wrong in America. Thomas, Thomas Jefferson got this wrong, okay? Benjamin Franklin got this wrong. They should have known better if they had read and believed Romans 9 verse 5. They would have gotten this right. Paul says about the Jewish people that to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And to that you might say, well, who is God over all? Who are we talking about, Paul? Who's Paul referring to there? Well, the reference to that pronoun is the noun that precedes the relative clause. Everybody got that? Who is God over all that Paul is talking about? Answer, Christ. Christ. So let me state the obvious here. Let me rearrange Paul's statement a bit. Who is God over all? Blessed forever. Jesus Christ is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Everybody with me? Might say, no, 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 Pastor Tony, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they came to my house and they said Jesus isn't God. Jesus never said he was God. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong, okay? And you can tell them that the next time they come over. They are wrong about this. And it's not, it's not just Romans 9, verse 5. All throughout the Bible, we see clearly that Jesus is identified as the Christ. Jesus is deity. Let me just address that whole Jesus never referred to himself as God argument right now, okay? That is patently false. There's this great moment in John chapter 8. I know some of you all know this because I preached through it not that long ago. The Pharisees wanted to stone Jesus. Why did they want to kill him? Because Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. What was, what was Jesus doing in that moment? I'll just tell you, we misunderstand that. The Pharisees did not misunderstand that. They wanted to kill him for that because what was Jesus doing in that moment? He was connecting himself. He was calling himself the I am of the Old Testament. Who is the I am who, I, who is in the Old Testament? It's Yahweh. Jesus was essentially saying, I am Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I am. I am Yahweh. Those Pharisees knew what he was saying and they picked up stones to kill him. Because he was blaspheming in their minds. He was, he was a blasphemer. And you know what? I'll just tell you right now. They, if, they would be right to throw stones at him and kill him for blasphemy if it wasn't true. But it is true. Jesus is God. And Jesus affirmed the truth of the fact that he is God even by his own words. Before Abraham was, I am. And even if Jesus didn't call himself God, Paul calls himself, calls Jesus God, right here in Romans 9. Paul does the same thing in Titus 2.13, by the way. Paul says there, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is Paul's testimony any less significant than Jesus' own testimony about himself? Are Paul's letters any less inspired by God than what the Gospels say in the New Testament? No, they're both inspired. And Paul, that's not the only place that Paul affirms Jesus' deity. Paul said about Jesus that all things were created by him and for him, Colossians 1.16. Paul said that in Christ the fullness of the deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2 verse 9. Paul said the, that the judgment seat of God, he called it the judgment seat of Christ, using those terms interchangeably, God and Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul repeatedly gives Jesus Christ that title, Lord, Lord. 
which is linked to the Yahweh of the Old Testament through the LXX. Jesus is given the name that is above every name, Philippians 2, verse 9. Even if Paul never called Jesus God in Romans 9, verse 5, we have ample evidence in Scripture for what theologians refer to as the deity of Christ. But the fact remains that Paul did call Jesus God in Romans 9, verse 5. So Harvest Decatur, put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. <laughs> Jesus is God. You know, I haven't, I haven't quoted C.S. Lewis in a while. And I know some of y'all are getting antsy about that. So I, I culled my Lewis resources this week, and I came up with a choice quotation from C.S. Lewis. Here it is. There is no parallel to Christianity in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would first have rent his clothes and then cut your head off. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would have probably replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. That's good. And it goes right along with my, my favorite Lewis quote, the famous poached egg comment. Lewis says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he is a madman or something worse. Listen, church, I, I want you all to be fired up about evangelism today. I, I really do. I want to get the word out about Jesus. But we've got to tell the truth about him and who he is. And we can't go tell people about Jesus and say, well, you know, Jesus was a good guy. He said a lot of good things. He's a good moral teacher. And we can't say things like, well, Jesus believed himself. So you need to believe in yourself, too. That is a load of malarkey. That is not what we believe at all. And that is not what the Bible teaches. And we can't just say Jesus was an innocent man who died on the cross for our sins. That's true, but that's incomplete. Jesus is more than just an innocent man who died on the cross for our sins. He is God in the flesh. He is the God-man who died for our sins. And his humanity and his deity are, are essential aspects of our salvation, of the, the truth that we believe about him. And I think this is important too because we don't just embrace a Jesus who's our savior. We don't just embrace a Jesus who's our Christ, who's our Messiah. He is those things. We embrace Jesus as the Lord of our lives. He is God in the flesh. And we submit our lives to him in obedience to him. And let me just be clear as I'm closing this morning. I have a pretty good idea, even as I look out on our church, where most of you are in your faith. I can't see the faces of those who are watching online right now. But if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you need to do that ASAP. Because he might come back today. And your very life might be required of you today. 
Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe and he took on human flesh and he died on the cross for our sins so that we might live eternally with him. You can have eternal life. You can have eternal life. Let today be a day of salvation for you. And if that's the case, if you're watching now and you need to embrace Christ, I'm just going to walk you through that as we close our service this morning. And I'm going to walk you through what we call the ABCs. I've probably done this a thousand times from this pulpit, but this is a thousand and one right now. ABCs, you admit, first of all, that you are a sinner before God. That is pretty easy to do. And if you need convincing of that, come up later and I'll convince you that you're a sinner pretty quickly. And I'm a sinner. And, but that, that's not enough to admit. Secondly, B, you need to believe. You need to believe in Jesus' death on the cross for your sin and his resurrection from the dead, death from, from the dead, bringing victory over death. You admit, you believe, and then you confess Jesus as Lord. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, capital L-O-R-D, capital, capital Lord Yahweh, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. We admit, we believe, and we confess Jesus as Lord. Let's just bow our heads right now if we can. Let's just quiet ourselves before the Lord. The worship team's gonna come, but please don't be distracted by that. Wherever you are right now in this sanctuary watching it, at home or somewhere else, downstairs, even in our overflow room. You can have the assurance of salvation that Paul talks about in Romans 8. And you don't save yourselves, yourself. It's not good works that saves you. It's not heritage that saves you. It's not your mama's faith. It's not your daddy's faith. It's, it's your faith. And if that's you right now, let me encourage you in the quietness of your heart to say to the Lord right now, I am a sinner. Admit that before the Lord. I did this when I was six years old. I've shared that story with you guys before. However old you are right now, whether you're five, six, seven, or 70, 80, or 90, you can have the assurance of salvation that comes through faith in Christ. Admit your sinfulness before him. Admit your need for him. And then believe. We are saved by faith. Believe that Jesus, God of the universe, came to earth and died on a cross for your sins and paid the penalty for your sins. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead three days later. Believe it. Tell the Lord right now, I believe. I believe in your death, Jesus. I believe in your resurrection. And then confess Jesus as Lord. You are no longer the Lord of your life. Jesus is Lord of your life. Submit your life to him. Surrender your life to him. Lord, thank you for the free gift of salvation. We don't deserve it. But God, in your mercy, you have rescued us. You have redeemed us. 
We are so grateful, Lord, and we are full of joy, but also sorrow for those who don't know you. And God, I pray right now that you would activate that sorrow inside of us into gospel proclamation. and the testifying believers at Harvest Decatur who can't not talk about you. God, give us boldness. Our time is so short, Lord. We'll be gone soon. Help us to redeem our time. Help us to Share Christ. Help us to be used as your instruments, as your ambassadors for the gospel. God, would you put on our minds right now, every person in this room, every person watching at home who is a saved follower of Jesus, put specific people in their minds, in my mind, that we can share our faith with this week, that we can minister to, Holy Spirit, bring those people to mind again and again and again so we pray for them, so that we invite them over for dinner, so that we speak to them, so that we find them in our workplaces and chat with them about our faith. Give us those opportunities, Lord, I pray. give us a heart for the lost like your heart like the Apostle Paul's heart I pray do that even now as we finish our service Lord I pray pray in the strong name of Jesus Amen